Mother's Day is a special, special day, very special day, and it sort of ushers in a season of special days when you think about, it, of course, Mother's Day today, and uh, then soon, as Lisa mentioned, will be Memorial Day, it's a special day for us here in this country, then Father's Day, and it's also a season, a lot of special days of wedding days, right? Wedding days. How many of you have an anniversary either in May, June? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Yeah. Dozens. Special wedding days. Found out about something about wedding days this week as I was reading a little bit. You know, newsflash, weddings aren't cheap. Did you know that? (laughs) You know what the average cost of a wedding is in the United States today? The average cost, we're told. $33,000. $33,000. That's the average cost of us. I know some people won't know. $33,000 is the average cost of a wedding. You know, my uh, daughter uh, got married a year and a half ago to that gentleman in the sound booth back there, Ben. I tried to get them to go for $3,000 in a ladder. <laughs> 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 they wouldn't go for it. She, she wouldn't have it. $33,000. But you know that is chicken feed compared to the cost of a wedding that's going to take place this Saturday in England. Anybody heard about this? Yeah. The wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And it's estimated the cost of this wedding will be $46 million. $46 million. And amazing, $43 million of that $46 million will be spent on security. $43 million of the $46 million will be spent on security. Now think about that. A fortune... A fortune spent to guarantee a secure wedding. A fortune spent to secure a wedding. Now, believe it or not, that is the message that God has in his word for us this morning as we are continuing our journey through the book of Hebrews. I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles with you, to Hebrews chapter 7, if you're using a Bible that's provided here, that's page 1004. But that is in reality what this passage is about, that the Lord has spent a fortune to secure a royal wedding. A royal wedding, a sacred covenant. A covenant between sinful people And a Savior God. And it is made absolutely secure. Absolutely secure at an infinite cost. An infinite cost to the Father and His Son, the groom, doesn't cost the bride anything. Doesn't cost her anything. It's absolutely free for the bride. But we are reading as we continue through Hebrews about the Lord Jesus as our perfect guarantee. And I want us to read about this 
security of this new covenant, this wedding covenant this morning in Hebrews chapter 7 as we're continuing our journey. And we're going to begin reading at verse 17. And I know we've stood some this morning, but if you can just for a moment, you're able, please stand. Let's read together this beautiful passage about Jesus, our perfect guarantee of a new covenant, a wedding covenant. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, that is Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as a high priest. But the word of an oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. That is the word of the Lord. Now that's a marriage covenant that's being described there. A covenant between Jesus... And his people and Jesus himself is the perfect guarantee. The perfect guarantee. And what I'd like us to do this morning is just try to simply do what the writer does here. And that is as he talks about Jesus being the guarantee of our salvation. And our ultimate union with the Lord. He gives three reasons. Three reasons why Jesus is our perfect guarantee. Three reasons why of all the guarantees, there's none greater than the guarantee himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's just notice these if we would. The first is this. He says that he is the guarantee because of an eternal oath that has been made. He is the guarantee of an eternal oath. Now, for 1,500 years, 
all of the priests of Israel had been set aside by a sacred ritual. And every aspect of the ritual was prescribed according to the law. One of the most important parts of the ritual is before the priest was set aside, he was confess his sins over a ram. The ram was slain as a sacrifice. Then some of the blood was taken from the ram and blood was put upon the right earlobe of the priest, his right thumb, and his right great toe. Why was that? It was setting aside this man. It was saying that this man is set aside to walk a different kind of walk, to do a different kind of work, to hear and think a different kind of way. He was set aside to be a priest. But there was one thing that was never part of setting aside of those tens of thousands of priests who had served through those 1,500 years. Never once was the priest required to take an oath. He never took an oath. Notice verse 20 says this. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made priests without an oath. Though they had this ritual, all these descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first priest, all of them were made priests without an oath. But Jesus, notice... This is the writer's point. He was established as a priest by an oath. By an oath. Now, notice this. It was not an oath that Jesus himself made. It was not an oath that was made by him. It was an oath that was made to him. It was an oath made by his father. His God made an oath. To him. Verse 21. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now, here we hear God the Father speaking a promise and oath to his son. And saying, you are my one special priest forever and ever. Now the key point, what's the key point? The key point of the writer of Hebrews here, who remember is writing primarily to Jewish believers, people who've become believers in Messiah. They are Jewish, but they're being tempted to turn back from their commitment to Jesus because of all the persecution. His main point is that there has been a change. You can't go back. You can't go back to the priesthood the way it used to be. 
You can't go back to what is happening still in the temple in Jerusalem because that has been set aside by God. Everything has been changed. Verse 12, that's what the writer is saying. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. What is he saying? If God has changed the priesthood, the priesthood is the central aspect of the law. It's the central aspect of the old covenant. How do people come before a holy God? Only through priests. And if that priesthood has been set aside then everything has been set aside. The, the law itself has been set aside. Now, he's saying here there's been a change. And the old covenant, the old contract between God and Israel has been set aside because the priests have been set aside. And now there is a new covenant. Notice verse 18. This is what he's saying. He says, on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness. Now, this is talking about the law. It's set aside. Why? Because of its weakness. What does that mean? How was the law weak? Well, the law wasn't weak in that there's something was wrong with the law. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with the old covenant the problem was not with the old covenant. The problem was with people. Nobody could keep the covenant. The problem was not with the law. The law is God's perfect standard. The problem is nobody can keep God's law. For we have all sinned, what? And come short of the glory of God, the standard of God. That was the problem, not with the law but with people. The law of Moses was set aside. What was it set aside? It was not set aside because it was bad. Please don't ever think that. The old covenant was not set aside because it was bad. It came from God. Nothing that God gives can be bad, right? But it was set aside for something better. Something better. It was set aside for a new covenant, a better covenant. Look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, nothing complete. But on the other hand, a better hope, a better assurance is introduced through which we draw near to God. Think about it. What did the priesthood really say? The priesthood and everything about the old covenant said, you've got to be very careful how you come and approach this blazing, holy God. You've got to come this way. This is the only way you can come. You yourself cannot come. Somebody's got to come for you. These priests will do that for you. But everything about the old covenant said this. You just can't walk into that house, that temple. 
You just can't walk in behind that curtain into the presence of God. If you do, something's awful going to happen. And excuse me, it will be God awful. It will be awful if you go back there. That's what the law said. But now this new covenant, what does it say? It says by this new covenant, a hope has been introduced through which we may draw near to God. Think about that. No longer stay out, stay away. Only a few can come. Only those who've been set aside. But now something has so drastically changed that God has literally torn back the curtain and said, y'all come. (laughs) You come. You can come now. And that is what Jesus has accomplished. That's what makes Jesus better. Because Jesus can take you right into the presence of his Father. He can take you right to him. And anyone who takes Jesus by the hand, Jesus will take that person to his father. Now, that's a different kind of covenant. Wouldn't you agree? Something has really changed. We are invited. We are invited to come. Imagine if you were invited to come to that wedding on Saturday. London, wouldn't you feel pretty special? Well, that's nothing compared to the wedding you're invited to, right? You're invited. You're invited to come. Be a part of it. Jesus is better. He brings a new covenant. Now, why is it a better covenant? Because he himself is the guarantee. Look at verse number 22. This is one of the key verse. It may be the key verse of the entire book of Hebrews. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now this is the first time the word covenant is used in Hebrews. But in chapter 8 and 9, which we're going to look at over the next few weeks, it's the whole theme. There's a new contract between God and man. There's a new covenant between God and man. The old one has been set away. A new one has come. And the one who guarantees it is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one who guarantees it. He's the pledge. What's a guarantor? In any contract, the guarantor is the person who says, I'm the responsible party. I will pay the price. I will take care of the obligations. I'm the guarantor. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus pledges himself. Think about it, friends. Jesus pledges himself to fulfill Our obligations. He has fulfilled our obligations to God. We could never fulfill our own obligations because we're sinners. We're not righteous. We can't be righteous. But the one who is righteous is our guarantor. The one who has paid the price, the one who has fulfilled our obligation and always will is Jesus Christ our Savior. Now that's quite a contract, wouldn't you say? 
That is a contract. I love what that old song says. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Oh, friend, if you want assurance, don't look in here. There's no assurance in here. And if you want assurance, don't even look in here. In this church or any church, if you want assurance, you got to look up there to the one who's at the Father's right hand, who is your personal guarantor of your obligations to God. Now, that's security. That's security. What a guarantee we have in Jesus. First of all, it's a lifetime guarantee because it lasts for his lifetime. Aren't you thankful that God's guarantee is not just for your lifetime on earth? Because there's a lot of life after you leave this earth. But it's his lifetime guarantee. All of his life. And that's the second reason Jesus is a perfect guarantee. Is because it's the guarantee of an eternal life. Not just an eternal oath. But an eternal life. Now, every person's life, every person's life is limited by one unyielding force. The one unyielding force that limits every person's life in this room is time. Time. We all have a limited amount of it. We don't know how much we have. But it is a limited quantity. Our life is limited by time. And that's the reason the priesthood was never complete. Because the priests had limited lifetime. Look at verse 23. He says this. The former priests were many in number. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You know, there's a very touching scene recorded in the book of Numbers. It's a scene where God speaks to Moses. He says, Moses, go get your brother Aaron and get his son Eliezer. And go climb that mountain. That mountain is Mount Hor. It's in the cross from the Judean wilderness. Modern area of Jordan. And the Bible says that Aaron and Moses and Aaron's son climbed to that mountain. And God said, take the priestly garments off of Aaron. Put them on his son. And then Aaron died. He lived to be 110. But his life was finished. He got to see the promised land from the top of Mount Hor. But he did not get to go in. And his life was completed. His spirit went to be with the Lord. 
but the priesthood was passed on to his son, Eliezer, who became high priest. Now listen, for the next 1,500 years, 82 times that same ritual took place. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, there were 82 high priests. Every one, the end of his life, another would come. 82 consecutive high priests over a period of 1,500 years. Why did that have to happen? Why that transfer? Because of the one great reality, death. But now, what a guarantee we have. What a guarantee we have. Because Jesus never has to transfer his priesthood, right? Why? Because the testimony is he never dies. He lives forever. <laughs> lives forever. And that means everything to us. What does it mean to us that Jesus is alive forever? Here's what it means. Look at verse 25. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible to me. It is the heart of the gospel. But listen to this beautiful verse. It says, consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, save completely, totally, no matter how great the sin. I like what one preacher said many years ago, not only does he save to the uttermost, he also saves to the guttermost, right? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, you know what I call that? I call that the Jesus guarantee. The Jesus guarantee. First of all, it's a guarantee of what Jesus is able to do. What is Jesus able to do? He is able to save to the uttermost. My friend, listen, take hope. Jesus Christ has undertaken for you and he is able to save your soul. He is able to save to the uttermost. There is no sin that is beyond the merit of his incredible sacrifice. He's able. He's able. But you know what? It makes it a blessing. It's not just that he's able, he's willing and able. Number two, that's what Jesus will do. He is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him. That's what Jesus will do. Friend, the gospel is not what Jesus can do. There's no hope in that for you or me. To know that he can do it might mean that he won't do it for me, but he can do it for some others. But the gospel is what he can do for others, he will do for you and for me. He will do it. All who come to God through him, what is that? Faith. 
Thank God it doesn't say, not for all who do enough good works. Number one, we couldn't. But even if we could, how would we know if we've done enough? That's the reason the other people and the religions of the world, there's no hope there. There's no joy in those religions. There's no peace because they don't know till the judgment day whether they've done enough. But dear friend, this is the gospel. The bad news is you can't do enough. And the good news is it's already been done for you in Jesus Christ. And you come to the Father through him. That's what he is able to do. That's what he will do. And notice, this is what makes it really gospel. He will always do it. What if Jesus changed his mind? That wouldn't be too good, would it? What if 10 million years from today, Jesus kind of changed his mind on you? What if you were walking down the streets of gold and Jesus saw you a billion years from now and he would have thought, hmm. Just don't think that was a good decision. (laughs) Can you imagine? What would you be doing in heaven if you thought Jesus could change his mind? You'd be doing exactly what I'd be doing. (laughs) Anybody seen Jesus? No. Guess we're good for another day. (laughs) What hope's that? No, it's what he will always do. What will he always do for those who come to God by him? He will ever live to make intercession for them. You know what that means? Jesus is forever on your side. He's forever on your side. Jesus isn't neutral about his people. He's not neutral towards sinners who cast themselves on his mercy. He's on their side. And nobody can condemn them because Jesus has saved them. And he ever lives to be their intercessor, to represent them. I love what one writer, H.B. Sweet, from 1912, here's what he said. Our Lord's life in heaven is his prayer. Don't get the idea that Jesus is up there in heaven on his knees in one constant prayer meeting for his people. That's not the way it is. You know what the Bible says? That when Jesus went back, he went to that throne and he did what? He sat down, something no priest had ever done. But his work was finished. He himself is the intercession. He himself is the one who represents us. In himself, the only thing that he brought out of that tomb that he took into the tomb was what? The nail prints in his hands and feet and side. That's the only thing Jesus took out of the tomb that he brought in with him. He took in the marks of his love for us and he still bears those marks. And those marks are still in his body sitting at the Father's right hand. And he himself sitting there is his prayer for you. Whoa. 
Friends, I want to tell you, until the, heal, until the wounds of Jesus heal over, you've got nothing to worry about. And they're never going to heal over. Not those marks. Those scars will always be there. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Finally, there's one more guarantee. There's a triple guarantee of Jesus. The guarantee of an eternal oath that God made to him. You are my priest forever. There is the guarantee of eternal life. He lives forever. This priest will never die. And then number three, there's the guarantee of his eternal exaltation. His eternal exaltation. Now, you know, I want to tell you something. I have a friend in Knoxville. And I hope you never meet him. Several of you have. Let me tell you about him. He's a con artist. And he's gifted at it. And here's his scam. I'm, I'm serious about this. Here's his scam. He hangs around places, especially a lot of times near offices, hospitals, doctor's offices. And he walks up and he starts talking to people. And he says this, he says, you know, you look familiar to me. Where do you go to church? And if you're from this church, you'll say, well, I go to West Park Baptist Church. And here's what he'll say to you. Sam Paulson. He's the pastor there. He says, yeah, yeah, he's my pastor. <laughs> his wife, Susan. Oh, his kids, aren't those great? Isn't he a wonderful man? And he will start saying things about me as your pastor. Now, guess what? He's so slick, he's memorized uh, biography of a number of pastors in Knoxville. I happen to be one of them. And then here's what he'll say next. He was a great help to me, Sam, when I was in town first several months ago. You may have heard about the terrible car wreck. My son was a student at Johnson University. He was killed by that drunk driver. I've had to be in town, me and my wife, several times for, for uh, court hearings. Matter of fact, it was just completed uh, yesterday. And we got his stuff. My wife's already on the road. She's headed up to Cleveland. And uh, it was such a hurry. She took my wallet with her. Here I am with his, I got to get his dog, you see. I got to get his dog up there and these few other things that are his. Here I am, $13. $13. Next thing you know, people are giving money to pay for this man to have a bus ticket to get back home because he mentioned their pastor and he tells about his heartbreak of the loss of his son. And guess what? He's good. He's good at lying, he's good at stealing. Now, he does this a lot. I want you to pray for him. I'm praying that this man will be saved. I don't know who he is, but several of you have met him. (laughs) 
And I'm praying he'll be saved. And several other pastors, same thing has happened. And I know the police officers in our community, they have many more important things than somebody who's doing this. But he's not my friend. He's not my friend. And he's not your friend either. Ultimately, what guarantee do we have that we really are going to be in heaven and we are really going to be with the Lord and we really are going to spend eternity? What guarantee do we have? It's, it's not just words. It's not just written words, spoken words, but ultimately what guarantees a contract? What is it that guarantees a contract? You know what it is. It's the character of the person making the promise. That's what guarantees a contract. And how secure is our contract based on the character of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? He exalted. He's holy in his sanctification. Verse 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Here is Jesus. His perfect life is the guarantee. He's holy. He's uncondemned by sin. He's Innocent, that means he's unhurtful. He can't hurt anybody and he's unstained. There's no sin in his life. He's blameless. And he's separated from sinners. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't love sinners because Jesus is what? He's a friend of sinners. And aren't you glad? He's a friend of sinners. But what it means is that he is completely unique and holy He's the perfect high priest, completely separated from all that's wrong and completely devoted to those that he loves. That's our high priest. And he is offered a sacrifice. He has offered a sacrifice. Verse 27 says... He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins. And then for those of the people, that's what the priests did all the time. Before they could offer a sacrifice for the people, they had to confess their own sins over a sacrifice. Then they could perform a sacrifice. But not the Lord Jesus. The Bible says he did this. He offered a sacrifice once for all, and not a sacrifice for himself, but a sacrifice of himself, right? He offered up himself. Friend, think about it. Our priest, Jesus, became our sacrifice. Our priest climbed up on the altar, not made of stone, but made of wood. Our priest stretched himself out as the sacrifice. God's one and only son, God's Isaac, 
did not have to be bound and tied to that cross. Let me tell you something. It was not those nails that kept Jesus on that cross. What kept Jesus on that cross was his devotion to his Father and his devoted love to mankind, to sinners. Only love kept Jesus on that cross. He could have called, what, 10,000 angels. But what did he do? He offered a prayer. Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What a Savior. The priest stretched himself out on the altar for you and for me. When no other sacrifice would do He sacrificed himself. And God responded. (laughs) Boy, did God respond. How did God respond to what Jesus had done? He exalted his son when after those three days, what did God do? Raised him from the dead. Raised him from the dead. He raised his son and he said, You are my beloved son and you. I'm well pleased. And you are now the priest exalted forever for what you have done on behalf of my holiness and on behalf of these sinners. You now are exalted above the heavens Forever and ever you will reign. You are the king priest forever of the new covenant. And you will reign forever with your people. That's what God said. God was satisfied. And he raised his son from the dead. And this is what God is saying. When God sees his son. When God sees his son Jesus. He remembers. He is the guarantor of the covenant. And God is satisfied. And he says, You're my son. And your people are my people forever. I promise. And God's people said what? Amen. Amen.